Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, Koshi here. Before we get into this episode of The Call, I've got a favor to ask. The bigger the Ausbiz audience, the more we can invest in great content and keep providing quality investment ideas to you for free. If you could just take a minute of your time to leave a review of the call in the Apple podcast app, it'll help keep our tribe growing. And of course, don't forget to catch up with all the best interviews each day at ausbiz.com.au. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the call. Hello, welcome back to Ausbiz, Australia's only live streaming business and markets channel. Just gone midday and welcome to the call. 10 stocks that you suggest we have a look at. I put them to our expert panel for their views on it. I chuck in a stock of the day, something that's in the, in the news at the moment. And uh, we do all that in 60 minutes. So uh, hold on tight. We've got a lot to get through. And Mark Morland from Team Invest joins us today. And Scott Phillips from Motley Fool is the panel. Good morning, gents. Good morning. Hey, Koshi. How are you? All right, let's get straight into it because uh, we always have a lot to chat about with you two, which is what I love. And I thought we'd take a look at Stock of the Day, one that I choose. Um, uh, we're finally reaching the end of uh, this reporting season, wraps up. Um, and uh, so we're going to take a look at one of the headliners on the final day of the earnings season. That was Harvey Norman, the big retailer. Company reporting a 75% jump in four-year profits as lockdowns and JobKeeper boosted its balance sheet. Earnings coming in at close to $1.5 billion, with the board also declaring a 15 cent per share final dividend. On the outlook, the company flagging recent lockdowns have hurt sales in July and August, but it sees a quick recovery in spending once restrictions are eased thanks to pent up demand. The results comes off the company repaying the federal government $6 million in JobKeeper subsidies after mounting pressure on a lot of listed companies. So uh, Mark Morland, good increase uh, in profit and revenues. Uh, share price down, spooked by the outlook, do you think? What do you think of Harvey Norman? Uh, well, I never speculate on why share prices go down because the market, you know, it, it's impossible. You, I mean, you can, you can come up with a, a theory, but uh, we, we, we like share prices going down because we're net buyers. Uh, Harvey yeah. Norman's uh, is still a very strong business. It always has been. We've, we've never really been enamoured with it because Jerry Harvey sort of runs it very much like his own domain. And he does, and, he, and he's not... He's not. He's pretty non-differential to shareholders in, in principle, or not. It's just the way he is. Um, but he runs a really good show, and the business has done very well. Uh, there's nothing wrong with it. It passes all of our uh, filters. So on the financial metrics, it's all very good. We've got it returning about um, at the moment. Uh, the range is eight percent per year for the next five years on a margin of safety, and seventeen percent on our default metrics, which is pretty good. And it's on a P at the moment of about eight. About eight times, I think, um, no, 9.5, sorry, it's on 9.5 P at the moment. 
And the good thing about retail generally is the PEs are all no different to what they were before we had the impact of uh, interest rates crashing and free money. So there, there, it's a sector of the market which is actually quite good value, meaning yeah, there's not a lot of downside risk if we ever get into a higher interest rate environment and PE ratios come down. So you, you don't have the same capital risk as you do with a lot of companies that have very high high PE ratios. So I'd say, uh, Harvey Norman, I couldn't say it's not a buy at the moment. My preference would be JB Hi-Fi, which I think is better. And it's about, it's about um, the PE is very similar to JB Hi-Fi, it's on about 10. And JB Hi-Fi has about twice the EPS growth rate as Harvey Norman, but they're at about 20% and Harvey Norman's about 8%. Right. So, uh, yep. Okay. So, what, you'd do it as a hold or? Oh, well, no, it's, I, I'd say it's a buy. Based on its metrics, it's still a very right. good business and the outlook's good. Uh, the other thing Jerry's got going for him, which I like, is their international expansion. You know, they've gone into Croatia and other markets and so far they're all being quite successful from my understanding. So there's, unlike most of our other retailers, Harvey Norman actually has an international component, which has got a, is a growth yeah. area for them. Yeah. So I'll say it's a buy. Yeah. Uh, Scott, what did you think of the result and, and Harvey Norman at these prices? Yeah, really hard to hate the result, Koshi. As, as Mark said, really, really strong set of numbers. Uh, 15 point something percent growth in sales, 75 percent plus growth in profit. You can't ask for a, a better result. It's not on its pat alone, by the way. There's plenty of businesses who've done that exact thing in retail over the past 12 months. And as you rightly also pointed out, mate, the common theme of earnings season hasn't been so much the earnings themselves. They've been about what the market expects across the board. And again, to Mark's point, expect is a, is a, uh, a loaded word, but it's been pretty close to consensus and the movements haven't been big. The real watch out has been the first couple of weeks, in this case, six or seven weeks of the new financial year. And again, the retailers that Mark's mentioned, uh, pretty much every retailer, I think, thus far that I've seen, I've probably missed a couple, uh, but have reported disappointing and declining sales in the current financial year versus the last year. Now, that shouldn't be surprising to anybody, quite honestly. Not only are we in lockdown, which we all know, at least most of us are, but the, the, the sales this time last year were just through the roof. And so this was, of course, coming out of lockdown the first time around for most states. You're going to see that sort of uh, that sort of thing. I guess the size of the decline might be worrying some investors, um, but everyone from JB Hi-Fi, Kogan, I think Bapcor might have been down, um, really across the board, just just really struggling sales. Uh, now the question for investors is probably what comes next? How long does it last? How quickly do things to recover? That is the $64 question. But as Mark's already said. Harvey Norman at less than 10 times earnings, really high dividend yield, fully franked. As far as I know, I haven't seen the franking on this last dividend, but they tend to always, almost always be fully franked. Um, it's really hard to go past Harvey Norman. I wouldn't go past it. I would buy it at the current level. It is a buy for us at Motley Fool Share Advisor, I should disclose. Uh, I don't own any shares myself. Um, but yeah, I, look, it's, you know, it's, it's too cheap to pass up, given, mm. as Mark's already said, that the, the pre-pandemic price isn't, isn't that different. Sales are up. Uh, business is strong. It's it's really hard to find anything to dislike about Harvey Norman. It even repaid the JobKeeper six point oh two million dollars worth of JobKeeper that people were giving it giving it carry over. So if you look across the board. I, I don't know if you, if you don't buy Harvey Norman at, at eight or nine times earnings, I can't find much more for you to buy. Yeah, yeah. fascinating. All right, thank you for that. Let's get into the stocks that uh, you sent in for us to put to uh, the panel. Carlos uh, Mark wants a view on mineral resources and says. Uh, what's your view now that the iron ore price has plummeted? Of course, Mineral Resources, our fifth largest iron ore producer, but also has a, a bit of a portfolio of a uh, bit of lithium in there and things like that, don't they? 
They sure do. And I, I, I'm sure viewers be aware that Min's one of my favorite companies. Yes. <laughs> so uh, it's also uh, been a long-term uh, wealth winner for Team Invest members. So uh, we've had a long-term relationship with Chris Ellison and his company. He's, a, he's an outstanding uh, entrepreneur and excellent capital manager. Um, if you look at the company now, it used to be primarily a services company, and they've always, they still consider themselves a mining services company, by the way. So if you ask them what they do, that's what they'll say. Uh, but over the years, they've evolved into uh, a build-own operate model, um, uh, B Boom. Uh, and what that does is they develop the resources, they set up the mining, mine them, and then they try and then they often sell the assets off. Now they've done that most recently with the Wajina uh, lithium mine, which they it owed them way under 100 million, and they sold it for 1.2. They sold 60% of it to Albemarle in the US for 1.2 billion US dollars. And they also got a 40% carry in the lithium hydroxide plant at Kemperton. So that was a massive, massive uh, win for men. But they, this is their model and they do it really, really well. Having said that, they are exposed more now than they have been in the past to the iron ore prices because iron ore mining has become the biggest part of their business. So yes, they're exposed the same way as Rio and BHP and Fortescue are. Uh, and the biggest risk there, I think, is the geopolitical risk with China. But look, uh, they're, they're, he's, he's so good at managing capital and how they do it. I think whatever he's dealt with, he's proven historically that he makes money. He's just brilliant. So the other thing they've got is a very big upside next year on lithium. Their uh, Mount Marion spodumene uh, mine is now making very good money, which wasn't in last financial year because the lithium prices have come up. But he's shifting to not selling spodumene at all, which is like the partially processed ore. Right. And, and he's going all the way to lithium hydroxide, which is a battery input. Um, and that the Kemperton, the Kemperton uh, lithium hydroxide plant is due to open uh, or start producing by Christmas this year. So, And they're also developing uh, uh, hydroxide plants in China with their partner in China. So I, the lithium's got a fantastic future in batteries, and they're, they're doing the full mine to hydroxide value creation. Okay, so, so they're adding the processing rather than just shipping not the Not just dirt. processing, they're mining, processing, shipping, mining, processing, and sending it, selling it to the, uh, the, uh, the users. At the end of the day, the uh, the uh, the car dealers and oh, not car dealers, car car makers and so on. Ultimately, so I think it's a fantastic company. Um, uh, I, I've added, I bought some more shares the other day at 52, uh, even though it's my largest holding. So even though the iron prices have come down a bit, I just see that as being good opportunities to buy it, and I'm very very confident in their future. Okay, all right, I buy at these levels, five year highs, yes. but uh, great management by the sound of it, Scott. Yeah, I'm glad you asked Mark for it first. I know it's his favourite company. We've talked about one of his favourites. We've talked about it a lot uh, in the in the past weeks and months. And I thought, you know, if I've got to go first and try and do a good job of explaining the business, I'm going to be shown up by Mark. So I'm glad you asked him to go first. That was perfect <laughs> for me. Um, look, I, I, I share his uh, view. I, I should say one thing we haven't talked about a lot is CEO as capital allocator. We haven't really got time to go into it in detail here, but that role is dramatically undervalued by most in the market. I think it's fair to say. You know, you can, you can run your business, you can get like a little bit more, uh, you know, iron or out of the ground, you can do a little bit more in mining services. That's important. But if you badly allocate the capital, especially if you really well allocate your capital, you can have massive, massive outsized returns for investors or cost them a, a lot of money despite however good you are operationally at, at an executional level. So that's really, really important. I've got to say, I remain concerned about the iron ore price. Um, I don't 
see. And again, I've you know I've been a little bit right in the last few months, not as right as I thought I'd be, but also didn't have a view of, on timing. Quite honestly, I didn't expect it, didn't forecast it, but it was really unreasonably to to expect that iron ore would stay at two hundred plus dollars a ton when you could mine it for twenty. Um, the, the laws of supply and demand, unless you suspend them, and like the laws of physics, they're very, very hard to suspend over an extended period of time. Uh, that was probably always likely to come down, not not guaranteed. And again, I didn't know the time frame. I remain concerned, I think, at one level that the iron ore price simply remains higher than it's likely to be over the medium term. Now, if I'm wrong about that, mineral resources is frankly a very good buy right now at the current, uh, current price, current multiple marks already talked to that. I would expect a lower iron ore price over time, and I'm not convinced that I want to necessarily jump in the iron ore boat just yet, despite the, the, the business that it does. If I was going to play in this space, this is the business I would buy, by the way. Offer me Fortescue, BHP, Rio, Mineral Resources, I'm going for the latter. So let me put that on record. But I, I just wouldn't be comfortable to pay today's price, given today's iron ore price, just yet. Again, maybe yeah. I'm too conservative. Maybe I'm simply flat out wrong. Maybe the price goes higher or stays here. Um, I, I don't, and I'm not predicting we'll necessarily get a lower price at some future point, but I'm just not comfortable buying an iron ore miner or right. a business in the iron ore business when the price is still, the margins are still 70, 75% gross margins. Um, and just, again, it, it should be the case that other supply comes to fill that gap over time. And if it does, we should see the iron ore price go lower. And I think that crimps margins. Okay. All right. So good company, best in the sector, but you don't like the sector at the moment because of that trend that in the iron ore price. All right. Uh, Luke wants a view, Scott, on uh, micro equities asset management. Mm. Uh, a boutique um, uh, fund manager, Scott says, or Luke rather, says, good full year result, low PE, running a share buyback, high dividend, even if the current results are abnormal, earnings could halve and the PE would still be below the rest of the market. Interested in the Motley Fool view. There you go. Thank you, Luke. Um, look, those things are all true. The concern, I suppose, or the risk for investors is that while I think the most recent year is abnormal, at least in historical terms, the question is how, how far or how significantly abnormal it is. If you look back at the last sort of dozen or so years, 10 years of earnings, um, you get a number for the last year that's actually multiples of the previous. So when we say if they halve from here, that's a very reasonable approach to take. You start by saying, well, okay, what if profit halve? Am I paying a good price? I think he's right. I think it's a very undemanding price if profits halve. The problem is that if you go back further and you look at what the what the fall might be, frankly, the last year's profit was up, I think, three or four times on the previous year. If that's structurally changed and that's the new normal, then shares are absolutely cheap. If they halve, they're probably okay value. But if it goes back to the pre-2018, 2017, 2016 levels of profitability, um, then you're simply paying way too much. That's the real risk. I don't claim to have specific insight into microequities in terms of its likelihood or otherwise to maintain this level of profitability. Um, maybe it can, and if it can, then as I said, the stock's cheap. You just gotta have a reasonable view and a, and a reasonable basis for assuming that will remain the case. Normally, I, I think Luke's thinking is exactly right. Hey, uh, take Harvey Norman, right? Eight times earnings. If profit halves, well, you're still paying a, a pretty good price. The Harvey Norman business is solid. The demand is not going to be that variable once we get through COVID. So you can kind of buy that with a reasonable sense of knowing what the customers are likely to do. When it comes to a fund manager, between fund flows and performance fees, I think it's just much, much harder. Um, so this is a difficult one. As I said, if this is the new normal, then I'm go I'm I'm bypassing the the the, uh, the proverbial gift horse and I'm looking at the mouse and the mouth. Uh, if I am right though, and there is real risk of it falling not by half, but maybe by more. This could end up being actually an expensive price. And I think this is one, if you like it, if you're keeping an eye on it, I would say keep keeping an eye on it. Look at what the future looks like. Yeah, you might miss an opportunity, but you also might find either 
your thesis is proven out, in which case you'll buy at a slightly higher price with less risk. Or conversely, you might find that maybe you were lucky not to have jumped in today. Okay, but if you're in it, you'd, you'd hold it and see what pans <laughs> out? Or? If you're in it for the right reasons, probably. I mean, if you... If right. you bought it yesterday on this level of PE, you might say, well, hang on, have I made a mistake? So there's always that. Right. Uh, if yeah. you owned it for the last two or three years and expected longer term things and you're confident the thesis is playing out, then yeah, no reason to run away. Just be mindful that the current level of earnings until it's proven sustainable should have an asterisk against them in your own mind just because they could well fall away. Okay. Mark? Yeah, I think that was uh, well surmised. I, I, I've never looked at this business before, so it's only 120 mil market cap, so it's, it's quite small. I think they have about 300 million in funds under management. So this is a listed fund manager, which I don't have a problem with in principle, but I, I think you've got to remember is that last year was a spectacular year for the industry. Um, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Scott, but wasn't the, wasn't the uh, ASX up 28% or something? <laughs> the, uh, yeah, something like that. That. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, is a, that is a mega year. So now what they've done is, as Scott mentioned, they have increased their earnings from um, about um, uh, th- uh, three cents in 2020 to 15 to 11 cents in uh, 221. So this is that's a um, what's that uh, three to 11? So it's over three times increase in earnings, which is fine. Uh, you'd expect them to do that, considering the the tailwind that the markets had. The big question is, you know, will it is as Scott mentioned, is it, is it sustainable going forward? I have no idea. I had a look at their investment model and they're targeting long-term investments in uh, micro caps and small companies where they see good management and really good growth prospects. So that sounds good. So the question will be is how well have they chosen those companies? Um, There's no reason why this company can't have decent earnings going forward. And at the moment, it's in the bottom half of the green on our PE ratio uh, chart. So it's it's at about 12% out of 100% of where its normal trading range is. So you're actually getting a fairly big discount based on um, the fact that their earnings jumped up significantly. So that that I think that gives you a bit more confidence that you're not paying over the odds because quite a lot of the fund managers at the moment, not only have they had record earnings, but they've also got record PE ratios. So the market's paying them a high multiple on the high earnings, which I think is crazy. With this company, you're paying a low multiple on the high earnings, so that's a plus. Um, conscious investors giving me a margin of safety return of 20% per year on this company. Now, Conscious Invest is our tool and it's very reliable. So, so, so uh, you know, that, that would give me some more confidence. Its weakest area on our, all of our team invest metrics is stability of earnings, understandably, but it still does pass just on stability. So I think it's an interesting business and it, it may well be uh, worth considering. I'd need to understand more about what sort of companies you're invested in to be um, interested in it, but it does pass all of our metrics. Right, okay, all right. Um, our next stock, Joseph wants a view, Mark, on Australian Finance Group. Uh, this is the, the big mortgage broking, mortgage origination group that uh, they organise um, home loans for, for mortgage brokers. Uh, Joseph says, seeing that the property market is at all-time highs and AFG had a good result, do you think uh, this is as good as it will get for the company because eventually there will be a pullback in the property market and possibly a recession in Joseph's eyes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd say that the, I think that's probably fairly inevitable at some point, but the question is when, and I'm not a soothsayer, so I'm not going to even suggest I know, so I wouldn't have a clue. Um, to answer his question of is, is this as good as it gets, I suspect it might be. Uh, it does pass our filters. Uh, we're showing it returning one, 1.8% a year, on a margin of safety and about 9% on our default metrics. 
which is you know nothing spectacular, but it's not bad. You know, I mean, it's it's a mediocre company in my view. Um, it's in the top quartile of the PE ratio at 16 times earnings at the moment, which is high uh, for them. Uh, it needs to be at 10 or below to be in the b- bottom quartile. Now that's big. That's a big reason why the returns aren't looking that good. Is because it's expensive. So it's about an $800 million market cap company. Its EPS growth rate's been running at about 8% per year. But if you actually look at it over long term, since 2017, um, the earnings were 18 cents. And then this year, or last year, they were 19 cents. So it went down, then it's come back up again. Uh, yeah, it's okay. Uh, but nothing, nothing very exciting from my point of view. So I wouldn't be interested in it. Okay. Scott? Yeah, I think Mark summed up really nicely, Koshi. Similarly to Mark, I have no idea what comes next. Uh, no one does. I, I, I like to say, if, you, if you're doing a forecast, someone's giving you a forecast, they're either lying to you or themselves or both. Uh, we can always guess, we can always surmise and hypothesize, but it's impossible to know what comes next. It's not impossible, though, to look at the current circumstances and wonder historically and potentially moving forward where we might be in the cycle. And Mark's done a nice job of talking to exactly that Um the, there's two things around, I guess, mortgage broking. The first, of course, is the value of the homes being transacted because you, you earn a commission on the value of the mortgages you write, generally speaking. Some are on fixed fees, but most are on some sort of commission or other. The other approach, of course, on the other side is you are re- reliant on the number of houses or loans being refinanced. So you've got the purchase mm. up front and you've got the refinance. Now, the refinance part tends to favour businesses when there are movements in interest rates. If rates are coming down, everyone wants a better rate. If rates are going up, everyone wants a better rate. When rates are kind of flat, once you refinance once, if not much is going on, there's not a lot of reason to go out and refinance again. You know, There's no sense of like, well, I did it six months, a year, 18 mm-hmm. months ago. Rates haven't changed since. Maybe one bank's a little bit cheaper than the other one, but I'm unlikely to be locked into a rate that I haven't checked in a while and getting getting the a dodgy rate. And so when you think about activity, that home purchase activity is one, the refinance activity is the other. I can't really see either moving meaningfully upwards in the next two or three years. So if you think about what might drive that business's revenues and therefore profits, that'd be my speculation that I think activity is likely to be flat or maybe even drop away slightly. If and when rates start to move again, they might see a burst of activity, but it might be a decent time to wait. And I think um, as, as the question was asked, it, it probably is, if not as good as it gets, and certainly not, and certainly couldn't, you know, I, I'm not gonna pick the top, uh, but you're looking for businesses with an outsized chance of doing better from here than they are at the moment, either yep. in business or share price or both. I just don't see that size opportunity for AFG at the moment. Probably one I'd simply give a miss to. They're the sort of businesses that are cyclical and you can afford to look at them and kind of wait till you get a chance. And then if and when uh, they get a, a good opportunity, then you can dive in then. I don't think you need to play in every business all the time. I'm a long-term investor. I don't tend to play cyclicals. But if you're going to, there are better times than now. Yep. Uh, you make a good point on refinancing when interest rates aren't changing. And that's the reason why they're all offering cashbacks, isn't it? Because <laughs> they need exactly. the refinancing. So yep, yep. they're doing, doing a, a different way of marketing to try and get people to switch. It's fascinating yeah. at the moment, that market. Uh, Scott yes. wants a view, uh, Scott, uh, on New Farm. Uh, New Farm is basically a seed bank, isn't it, mm. for, for farmers. Uh, sells them seed, particularly in that canola, sorghum, and, and sunflower area. Yeah, seeds and pesticides largely cost you a bit of fertilizer business on the, on the sides. But yeah, basically agricultural output, maximizing the value of that for, for farmers, both uh, both of a small scale and obviously much, much larger scale. This is a fascinating business. We talked about cyclicality and New Farm's financials are really, really tough to get a handle on. If you look at their current PE, they, they haven't got one because they made a loss. If you go back only two years, 
They made more than 80 cents a share. This is a company trading on at $4 currently, $4.40. You're paying five times the 2018 profitability of this business. Now, again, you can look at this like one or two ways. You can say, well, really expensive based on last year's earnings, really cheap based on the earnings of a few years ago. But where are we now and what comes next? And again, I talked about being cyclical and maybe taking opportunities. This is a really, really difficult one. I started looking at this. I don't follow it super closely regularly, but I started looking at this one and think, gee, uh, you know, PE of effectively negative, even if you blend it, it's a couple of hundred times, according to uh, ComSec estimates, nothing else. Um, and if you think about the way that this moves forward, if you get a good year in the next couple of years, the share price goes through the roof. If you get a bad year over the next couple of years, you're probably going to sit on nothing, maybe even some more losses as investors slowly bleed away from a business that's otherwise cyclical. And as we do, as we are doing today, trying to work out, is this a cyclical lower structural problem? Is there a turnaround around the corner or do I have to wait for years? Those sort of things make it very, very difficult to invest in these sort of businesses as a long-term investor. I do think you're getting probably you know, a very, very good price if you believe the future is decent. So yeah, the prices can always be lower, they can always be better. But if you believe they can get even halfway back to those sort of highs and maintain something around that, uh, then you're getting probably five, seven, eight, ten 10 times earnings, even if you halve the 2018 earnings and kind of spread it over a couple of years. So I don't think it's a terrible business to own at the current price, I have to say. I'm not convinced that it's necessarily going to bounce back super fast or super high for a super long period of time. And like anything, if you kind of look forward and say, I don't know, I, I can make some intelligent speculation at best, um, I don't think that's enough confidence, enough grounds for, for investing in this sort of business at the current price. Another, I don't know, 30, 40% fall, which again would be massive. And I'd be super interested because I think the, the balance does move meaningfully in the other direction. Right. It's not quite money for jam, but it's not far off at those sort of prices. Right now, if you bought it, I wouldn't criticize you for it. I think there's a decent chance you make money if you get the cyclical bounce back and if it can sustain some level of profitability. Um, but I, it, it is intelligent speculation at best, and I'd give it a miss. Okay. Mark? Uh, yeah, no, no. <clears throat> that was um, very well uh, described by, by Scott. It, it actually goes to the problem with agricultural type businesses. Whenever they come up on the call and we look at them, usually they're, they're really difficult. You know, you look at them and you go, well, I, I haven't seen one yet where we've got, oh, how, this is fantastic. Everything's good. Yeah, it's a buy. They're always difficult because they actually have so many moving parts and there's so many things that are outside the control of the company on uh, how they, you know, there's droughts, there's, you know, there's economic issues, all sorts of stuff. This company has quite a lot of its own IP. You know, it has... Uh, it develops its own seeds and all sorts. So if you look at what they have in assets, you'd say, why well, doesn't it do well? Well, if you look at it historically, and I remember Team Invest, we're very big on consistency. So they took a massive loss in 2020. The trailing 12 months don't look so bad. They're actually showing um, earnings of 30 cents. So that's half the year, you know, for half of the uh, last half of last year, first half of uh, the year going the next year. So it is kind of come back, I think, to, but if, and if you look at the last number of years, the 80 cents that Scott was talking about was a bit of an outlier year. It was quite high. Before that, it was 48 cents, 51 cents, 38 cents. You know, so I would, if you're going to normalise it and try and say, well, should they go back to 50 cents earnings? I'd say, yeah, probably. So mm -hmm. if I just play with that, now, remember, we don't do this in Team Invest, but I can do it for the viewer's benefit. So if I, if I, if I change their earnings from um, 10 cents, which is what, our, what Conscious Investor is assuming, uh, and give them uh, earnings of 50 cents, which is taking it back to you know, what it was a couple of years ago, um, then your return is spectacular. I, I, then, I then show and we'll give them a growth rate of 5% or something because their long-term growth rate hasn't been very exciting. Uh, gives you a 20% return per year for the next five years. So I totally agree with Scott. The likelihood is that we'll come back to what it's done in the past, you know, and 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 on, and on that basis, 
you can actually do you can do quite well if you're willing to take those chances. It's not what we do at Team Invest, though. So uh, for me, it's not for me. Okay. All right. Uh, Jack wants uh, a view on another retailer. We started with Harvey Norman, but uh, Jack wants a view on Temple and Webster, the uh, the online homewares business that has shot the lights out during uh, uh, during lockdown. Revenues for the last financial year up eighty five percent. They also raised some cash plus the record profit. They have almost $100 million in the bank at the moment for this digital retailer. Uh, Mark, what do you think of uh, Templar Webster? Uh, well, it's been a bit of a glamour stock. We don't like glamour stocks. You know, they, in the, they, yeah, oh, why not? <laughs> because, because they tend to disappoint. Let's put it that way. Now, now Templar Webster's got, uh, I've got history for about six years. So it hasn't been around for that long. And it's only made money, really. It, first small profit was in 2018, which was, um, uh, uh, or break even actually. So really three years of profit. It went from three cents in 2019 to 12 cents per share in 20, and then actually came down to 11 cents in 21. So sales have jumped up fairly he- heavily though, which is encouraging. So the, the sales growth rate uh, is good. Um, but the problem with that is I'm showing a, a P ratio of uh, about 130 times uh, earnings, trailing earnings, oh. which is absurd because we're in retail here. This is online retail. So what? Uh, yep. What about uh, if, if you look at it by comparison? Um, yeah, what you're about talking Nick about Scarlett? eight or nine with Harvey Norman. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, what about Nick Scarley? Nick Scarley, you would argue, is a competitor. Their business model is even very similar. I wouldn't be surprised if, if it was it was actually initially designed on the back of... Um, uh, of uh, Nick Scarley, but you're obviously doing it uh, all online. So Nick, yeah, if you go, if you compare it, Nick Scarley is dramatically more profitable, has a much better history, and it's on a low PE. So I, I couldn't even entertain buying Temple and Wester with Wester when they've only really got th- two, three years of profit. It's two, and okay. the reason the earnings are so high as a percentage is come off a zero base. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the earnings per share would be down because they did the capital raise, so they've. And well, there's more shares, so four and shares more, on issue as well. Right. Uh, Scott, what do you think of Temple and Webster? I'm going to agree with Mark's uh, summary, but take a very different conclusion, Koshi, just to mix it up a little bit. Uh, I think that the, the summary is exactly right and highlights the risks of an investment in Temple and Webster. My confidence, to the extent that I have some, is it comes from the growth rate of the revenues. And ironically, to Mark's point about the growth being off a low base is absolutely true. I think the flip side of that is the operating leverage that a business that goes from loss to profit and then a little bit of profit to a bit more profit can actually bring reasonably quickly. If you can be Templar Webster and grow sales at 50 odd percent a year, now maybe it's not, maybe it's 30, maybe it's 20, maybe it's 10. We can we can uh, argue about what the, what the growth rates might be moving forward over the next three to 10 years. But if you can grow at meaningful compound rates for that period of time and do just a little bit of margin expansion you don't have any margin expansion, by the way, given the operating leverage. If you can drop some of that gross margin to the bottom line at reasonably efficient rates, if you can improve your net margin by a decent amount, you can halve and then halve again that PE. Now, I'm not making predictions again, as I said earlier, um, but I do think Templar Webster, if it can remain that relevant to that many people, if it can keep bringing people to the website and buying furniture at increasing rates over time, uh, that bottom line can improve markedly and really, really quickly. Uh, we've seen it with the likes of Amazon before in the US, and I don't want to, I hate drawing those c- conclusions, firstly, because I own Amazon shares. Secondly, because, you know, it's too easy to say, well, everything could be Amazon, therefore pay any price for it. That's absolutely not the case. Um, but if you think about the way that, 
you know, small margins can compound super fast on moderate growth and even you know, high growth top lines, it won't take much. Now, it is absolutely a high risk investment at the current price and given the current business model. Um, Nick Scarley is a, is a much more proven in, investment uh, and company. So is Harvey Norman. For what it's worth, we've got a buy recommendation on both those companies, Harvey Norman and, and Temple of Webster, um, and, and for very, very different reasons. I think Harvey Norman is a really sustainable quality business, big brand franchise, lots of repeat business. We've seen the numbers. Temple of Webster trying to do the exact opposite. Wayfair in the US is is, is probably, as much as it might have used temp, Nick Scarley as a, as a, uh, as a template, it also used Wayfair, the online furniture retailer in the States, as a template. It's it's massive and growing. In fact, Temple Webster bought the Australian business of Wayfair back in the day. Um, I think this one's definitely worth investing in. It is absolutely risky. Let me be very clear up front. Um, both the sentiment, to Mark's point, you know, if the share price halved, it'd still be on 70 times earnings. So, you know, it's not like it's, you know, if it halves, it's all of a sudden dirt cheap, yeah. like we talked about with some of the others. Um, but I think it's one worth your money if they can keep that top line momentum going. I think they can. So it's a buy for me. Okay. All right. Let's just recap the uh, first five stocks plus stock of the day, which was Harvey Norman. Yes, from both uh, uh, Mark and Scott for Harvey Norman. Uh, Mark in the retailing sector would prefer JB Hi-Fi. Mineral Resources, a yes from from Mark, a no from Scott because of um, his outlook on the iron ore price at the moment. Micro equities, um, if you've been in it, Sort of um, nothing wrong with holding it if, if you know it well, according to Scott. Not a stock for him, though, or Mark. Uh, Aussie Finance Group, a no. New Farmer, no. And uh, Temple and Webster, a yes from Scott, a no from Mark. Here at uh, the call, we've been following our own fantasy portfolio since the 1st of July last year, thanks to our partner, Nabtrade. Any stocks that get two thumbs up uh, from our expert panel, like Harvey Dorman has done, in this half hour goes into the portfolio. Let's check to see how it's been performing. It's up 1.5% for the week, uh, 3.5% for um, the month and since the 1st of July this year. So uh, 1st of last month, up almost 5%. Since uh, inception, the 1st of July last year, uh, the fantasy portfolio is up almost 42%. Some of the stocks recently added. Um, ReadyTech Holdings, Unity Group, Beacon Lighting, Macquarie Telecom, MSL Solutions. Some of the ones recently removed, Appen, Flight Centre, and uh, Vanguard's Global Value Equity ETF. You can check out all the stocks and ETFs in the calls portfolio. Head to osbiz.co forward slash portfolio. And uh, don't forget, uh, we'd love to keep growing our Ausbiz tribe here and there's no better time to tell your friends about us and what we do. For each friend who joins Ausbiz, we'll give you both an entry into our prize pool draw for the chance to win one of six prizes worth 10 grand, including a $5,000 self-wealth trading account. Uh, use the referral code in your COB newsletter and share with your networks. If you haven't subscribed, uh, go to osbiz.co forward slash join and you can read all the terms and conditions. The competition finishes uh, the 5th of September. Uh, let's get into um, our second five stocks. And uh, Scott, Evan wants a view on Iconex Health Care, which I haven't heard much about. Um, it has a whole bunch of uh, programs across medicinal cannabis and Psychedelics, according to Evan, uh, if you look at comparative American listed companies like 
mine med and compass pathways they have much higher market caps uh, they're also trialing a sleep apnea pill that they've got at the moment they've confirmed they're going to dual list on on the nasdaq uh, according to evan seems like a great risk reward opportunity given the deeper pockets of american investors and higher valuations of these cannabis and psychedelic biotechs compared to australia what do you think scott it's an interesting thesis, Koshi. I don't, I don't dislike the thinking. I think if you believe there is an arbitrage opportunity and you want to play that game between an Australian listing and a US listing, you might try it. We certainly have seen big multiples being offered in the US for some businesses that aren't maybe as, as expensive here. Also, the reverse is true. If you look at the likes of, say, realestate.com, for example, or Cochlear, uh, some of our big uh, medical businesses and, and online classifieds businesses go for a much higher PE than they would in the US. So you kind of get both these things going on. You have to believe, of course, that arbitrage can play out. Now, we do know, and I can't remember the name of the business. It was a, um, uh, a skin regeneration business that went from Australia to the US, trying to get some benefit, at least in part, from that price uh, arbitrage, the PE arbitrage, and maybe some capital raising potential. It actually went backwards for about the first six months of listing. So I would be a little bit cautious. You are, to some degree, cost tossing a coin here. Once the primary listing, or at least the, the weight of money, favours the US market, you're kind of hostage to whatever they decide. Now, maybe... As you say, uh, they look at the comparators and say, wow, this is a really cheap way to play medicinal cannabis and the Yanks pile in. Or maybe they say, well, this is rubbish. I don't, I don't care. Why would I bother? I've got the other two you've already mentioned. Why do I jump into this third smaller player? Um, and maybe it goes by the wayside. I, so I, I guess it's one of those things where if it plays one, out one way or the other, you either look smarter, you look silly. It's kind of a, toy, a coin toss. And in that circumstance, I don't know I'd be in a hurry to play that game. Uh, if you want to bet on red or black at the casino, knock yourself out. But I'd kind of want to take something in between there, which is, Yes, a chance of loss, as there always is when you invest in shares, but a, but a much higher chance, hopefully, of a better long-term return. And I don't know I'd be playing stock market or, or exchange arbitrage to get that result. On the company right. itself, there's every man and his dog wants to get into the medicinal cannabis game because there is a belief. And frankly, I wouldn't even be surprised if you read some of the emerging science between psychedelics, as you say, mate, and medicinal cannabis. These are areas that are showing some real promise among certain segments of the medical fraternity. And I wouldn't be surprised in three, five, 10, 15, 20 years, if it's a, if it's a larger part of the way we treat illnesses, particularly mm. mental illnesses and other health conditions, that's a very, very long way away though from saying, therefore this company must do well or should do well or will do well. Um, there's, a, there's a lot that can happen in between there. I've used the example way too many times, but if you told me that airline travel was gonna go up a thousand fold between 1972 and 2021, uh, you, you say, okay, I'll mortgage the house, I still have the owner by airline stocks and of course, uh, you, you would have gone broke half a dozen times over in that 50-year period. So just because there is a market, just because demand is growing, doesn't necessarily mean, A, it'll actually be profitable at all, or B, if it is, that your company is going to do well. So yes, the, the reward is is potentially very, very large. I don't blame anyone for looking at that going, wow, I want some of the good stuff. I'll have that hopeful 10, 100, 100-fold you know, increase in value uh, lottery ticket style. You have to remember the odds are probably also lottery ticket style. I wouldn't, well, while the, the, the reward is, is potentially huge, the odds of that, I think, are probably very small. Right. Um, so just, just take take out of both of those components before you buy the shares. Okay. Mark? Yeah, just building on that, uh, from my perspective, I'd say this is a classic capital killer. Uh, if you want to lose money, buy this. Because if they've got they've got a 14-year history and they've never made a dollar. And in that 14 years, like, well, how long does this business need to be able to demonstrate that it actually has something of value which they can sell to someone? And the, and the cannabis area admittedly 10 years ago it was more it wasn't really in the same boat as it is now but there's lots of companies in the us that actually are profitable and doing really well 
this company has burnt through so much shareholder capital. I was just looking at their uh, capital table. They started off with 20 million 10 years ago. This is not 14 years. I've only got 10 years of history. They had 20 million shares outstanding. Last year was 748 million. Oh, so, wow. So uh, what's that? 35 times. Uh, the. So if you, you've been diluted 35 times if you're an original shareholder. And nothing's changed. They never make a dollar. It just continues on. And now even to say they want to go on the NASDAQ to try and get a higher valuation says to me, I'll, I'll be careful what I, I say here because I don't want to get, uh, get into liability problems. Uh, I would say a total disregard for shareholders because that's like, a, well, if we go there, what do we do now? We've had 14 years of mining shareholders' uh, wallets. Um, let's go to get a NASDAQ listing and try and get the share price bumped up. I mean, it's totally absurd. Okay. So I would run from this. And casinos are much more fun, and the odds are far better. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, uh, Evan, that's a fairly pretty clear direction, I think. Um, all right, um, let's go something a bit more traditional, Mark. Lucinda wants a view on Aussie broadband. Um, hasn't been listed for very long, but it's a uh, an internet uh, provider um, targeting the, the top end, isn't it? The... Uh, uh, the premium internet um, uh, user and um, um, has had pretty good results. Uh, well, they've only they've been listed they've been listed for less than a year, so yeah. I don't have any I don't have any usable data that I can use. I can say anecdotally though that my uh, my uh, son signed us up for them, and uh, they 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 seem to be unusual in the the uh, broadband space in that they're under promising and over delivering. So they're actually guaranteeing up and download uh, rates and so on, rather than saying what the maximums are, which, right. which is what you get from a lot of the providers. So, so from a point of view of uh, the consumer proposition and how they're handling the marketing, it's fantastic. So I think that's very encouraging, but I don't have anything that I could comment on to say whether they're going to be uh, a profitable business or not. I mean, one right. of the problems with the NDN, of course, is that everybody has to pay um, uh, all the people who are reselling it are sort of on a fairly even playing field. So you therefore need to have, you need to be very, very efficient and you need volume to make money. So at least I'd say from a marketing point of view, it looks encouraging. Yep. Scott? Yeah, I actually share Mark's optimism on this one, Koshi. It's one of those, it's a rare telco provider that actually provokes some degree of customer love. Um, I use Telstra here. I'm not fortunate enough to use Aussie Broadband yet. I've, I have an occasion a couple of times to take to Twitter and rant just a little bit about a couple of experiences I've had with Telstra and my, my broadband connection. And I want to say both times, at least half a dozen people have said to me, hey, you should try Aussie broadband, it's great. Why don't you try Aussie? Jump on Aussie. Um, and, and you kind of think, man, when people say that, that you know yeah. something's good, right? To, to actually, again, especially in the telco space where they should be otherwise a dime a dozen. Their net promoter scores are through the roof. Their consumers absolutely love them. They are taking market share at a really fast rate. Now they're tiny, they're a couple of percentage points of the market, but they're growing really fast and taking a lot of market share. And this is one scenario, I think, where it's worth, if you're a small, innovative disruptor, and by the way, in the telco space, there have been plenty. There wasn't that long ago when TPG and IINet, of course, now owned by TPG, were the disruptors in the same space. And it was, you create a bit of a brand, you create a bit of a culture, you have plenty of people who are literally under their mates saying, you've got to try this, it's really great. And whatever it is, that whatever that secret source is, they can do it. Now, they're kind of pretty fortunate. They've been able to build a brand from scratch and they haven't got to deal with the legacy issues of the Telstra's and the Optus. Even Optus now is, what, is it 30, 40 years old almost? Um, you know, it's, it's a remarkable story to be able to build a brand new business in the technology age, do it profitably, build your own culture, 
And so far, it's really working. So, you know, I've got to say, if you look at the uptake of business, they're also doing some nice things behind the scenes. They've done some white label deals with other providers to effectively be their, um, their, their MBN white label provider and get scaled that way. They've also bought their own backhaul. So they're taking uh, some of the business away from the incumbents like Telstra and doing it themselves without paying the, the telco margins to, to basically use their lease, their, their infrastructure. So I think it's doing all the right things. We really like Aussie Broadband. It's again, in the Templar Webster kind of mold, it's not making a lot of money, if anything. Um, it's not yet profitable. It's not certainly, uh, you can't you know, value it traditionally and say, well, it's eight times earnings and it's established in a big business and, and whatever. But if you're taking share away from the other guys, you're doing it profitably, and you're doing it with a, a brand new business, new culture and customers that love you, that's a really, really good starting point. So again, I think it's a higher risk than average stock. But I'd be happy to buy Aussie Broadband. Yep. Okay. <clears throat> uh, Gaurav Sodhi from Intelligent Investor likes it as well, says the management um, has a good pedigree too. Um, Scott Paul wants a view on Next DC, the uh, big data centre operator. Um, turned in some pretty good results um, for last financial year. Revenue up 23%, EBITDA 29%, operating cash flow up 148%, and the shares fell 4%. <laughs> on the announcement. A, so, uh, yeah, the market expects a lot, doesn't it, from time to time. It's one of those things where you, you can you can do really, really well, but if you don't do quite as well as the market wants, you're, you're in trouble. Yep. What do you think of Next DC? Look, I, I, this is one I've been wrong on for a very long time, Koshi, and maybe I'll remain wrong, but I'm, I'm going to stick to my guns, and maybe that's just pure stubbornness. So, maybe take that with a, a grain of salt. Next DC has done a spectacular job of riding the wave of increased data and increased storage, right? It's in the business of, of effectively warehousing servers. Now, it does a lot more than that, uh, but to some degree, I'm not sure how much genuine um, proprietary value a Next DC brings that someone else couldn't bring in a similar circumstance as long as they had a, a very basic, I'll say very basic, a good understanding of the industry, but nothing that needs to be particularly special or unique. Um, to some degree, I think these become over time uh, effective REITs. They're, they're kind of, you know, property trusts that happen to house rather than uh, Bunnings stores or, uh, you know, a bulky, a bulky goods warehouse, uh, Amazon stock maybe. They're actually just simply having servers in the place. Now, yes, you, you charge for the server management and the maintenance. You charge for the air conditioning. It's got to be a bespoke space. I get all that. I can't see for the life of me why this doesn't become a commoditized business sooner rather than later. When a bigger player or, frankly, a local player decides to get into the space and compete, I think margins come under threat pretty quickly. And at the end of the day, unless you're very, very needing the, the absolute fastest or the absolute closest to an exchange, for example, or to a, to a stock exchange, if you if, if data trans, uh, transmission speeds matter to that nth degree, maybe you care who your data provider is. Outside that, do you go with AWS or an IBM product or a Google yeah. product or an XDC? And again, by the way, they, they, they also um, tend to inhabit each other's DCs from time to time. So there is a bit of both there going on. I'm just not convinced that there is enough proprietary value, brand value, um, the moats, if you like, in these businesses to maintain Next DC's gross margins. And I think, whilst not making that much money at the bottom line, uh, as you say, nice nice jumps so far. And I've been wrong so far, and maybe I continue to be wrong. But I just think this sort of business, there's not a lot that should guarantee it these sort of margins moving forward. There are so many international players who at some point or other, I assume, will turn up in Australia and say, thanks, we'd like a share of the pie too. Maybe Next DC gets bought out if everyone's lucky. Um, or maybe they start competing. If they do at scale, I just don't think the current price can be maintained. Okay. Mark? No, so I agree with that. This is also an area that's massively capital intensive. So you know, mm. to build data centres and all the security and the uh, power supplies 
and all the rest of what you have to do, it's very, very expensive. The other thing is the hardware ages fairly quickly because if you look at Moore's law on processing speed and so on, that's still in place. So you have this very rapidly depreciating assets and you make money basically by renting space in various ways on, on that. Now, if you look at their history, their 10 years, they've only made profits in about three of 10 years, or what I can see. And their biggest profit they ever made was in 2017, which was um, eight cents a share. And then it's been all downhill since then. But if I look at their, their sales over earnings charts, the sales have actually been increasing nicely um, uh, over, over time. Uh, with, with pretty good stability of growth, but their earnings have been going the other way. So mm. in other words, as they've grown the business, they make less and less money for every dollar they bring in as revenue. That's just not a good story you know, for me. And, and as Scott said about the, uh, the big players, Azure, which is Microsoft, and AWS, which is Amazon's uh, web services, they are gorillas and they are very big in Australia and they're building, they're building centres and they've been leasing space and they may even lease space from... Next DC, I believe, I couldn't swear to it, but I believe they have, or one of them has. Long term, that's like, you know, how long is that going to last? Yeah. You know, Amazon, uh, they're not into paying other people to do it for them. They're into having the super lowest cost provision of services. My son-in-law worked for Amazon for ages in an international role, and he told me what they did. They, made, they got all the servers made specifically to their specifications. Everything was designed to be the most power for the lowest cost possible with super efficient supply chains. I don't see how uh, an XDC and so on compete with these guys. I really yeah. can't see it, except okay. maybe in a niche way. And, and then what they've demonstrated is even though they've been growing for a decade, and I've only got 10 years, so they may have been longer than that, then, and they still aren't making money, yeah, really. Okay. So it's like, what's it, what's it to get excited about? All right. Okay, what about uh, Illumina, Mark? Brad wants to know if you're excited about that. The... Uh, into bauxite mining, Illumina refining, uh, 40% ownership of Alcoa and 55% uh, yeah. ownership of the, of the Portland uh, smelter. Yeah, um, diff difficult business. It's currently on a P, according to uh, my numbers here, of 29 times earnings. Um, I don't actually have, um, oh, sorry, the, the growth rate of the earnings, it was pretty flat up until about 2016, jumped up quite well in 2017 and 18 then it's been downhill since then yeah. so for 18 yeah. 19 20 21 earnings have been on a very steady to path down which is which is isn't very exciting um and the the other thing is they don't seem to uh where are we uh see when i looked at uh trying to look at their numbers the the revenue side they're showing zero revenue maybe scott can enlighten me but that's what it's what it was showing on their, uh, okay, let's say, uh, okay. um, AWC, sorry. Um, All right, Aluminum. Scott, what, what do you showing think? Showing zero revenue, operating revenue. Yep. Do you understand that, Scott? Yeah, Scott. It's a, it's a hard one. I think the combination is basically a question of, of how the revenue is actually allowed and then categorised given the the way the business operates, being a partial shareholder in, in others. Yeah. But you're right. I get the same. I get the same data here. I've got no revenue, but cash flow. It's just I think it's just the way it's being categorised. I agree yeah. with Mark's view in terms of the the challenge of, of running these businesses and valuing these businesses, given the, again, I talk a lot about commodity prices for very good reason, unless you know those commodity prices are low uh, and you're a decent low-cost producer, it's a tough business. We also have to remember, of course, that aluminium smelting is one of the most energy-intensive operations, yeah. activities in the world, literally in the world. It's been described as, as, as solid electricity, aluminium. 
uh, because so much energy is required to, to create the product. Now, we use it on alpha, we use it on, uh, on onion cans, plenty of other things besides, right? So it's not, it's an in-demand product. But if you think about the raw inputs, yes, alumina is important as the, the commodity and bauxite, uh, but almost, well, I think I'm pretty sure actually more importantly, and frankly, a larger swing factor is going to be the cost of electricity. And if you think about what government support is being provided, might be provided, might not be provided, the cost of energy moving forward, the push to renewables, uh, look, I mean, not going to stop making aluminium anytime any time soon, but you do wonder at what point the margins become under some sort of sustained pressure where the cost of the inputs and then the price that the customers are prepared to pay for the outputs, you probably can't replace alpha oil soon, you probably can't replace aluminium can soon, but gee, plastic bottles might get, might get cheaper or you might mm, find other options yep. at some point if prices keep going up. So it's a tough one for me. Um, I, I, look, I'm not probably ever going to be interested in this one, but unless the alumina price, the commodity price is particularly low, I'm giving it a miss. Okay. All right. Our final stock, we'll need to uh, whip through this one fairly quickly. Altium, Brian wants a view on that. Uh, Brian asks, is this recent share price decline due to the company losing credibility by delaying its financial results by a week or the financial results themselves? They seem to have given guidance of good revenue growth. I've got a very small holding, but have been looking to increase it. But a 14% slide in its share price is a bit worrying. Um, um, financial year results pretty mixed, revenue up just 1%. Um, what do you think, Scott, of Altium, the software company? Yeah, Crush, I'll try and do it quickly. So Altium, of course, knocked back a bid from Autodesk in the US recently too, saying, no, no, we're okay, we'll do it ourselves, thanks very much. And they didn't ask shareholders. Then to turn in this sort of result, I've got to say, it must feel like a bit of a slap in the face for those shareholders who might have taken the price that was being offered. Now they don't have that choice, they're stuck with a business that frankly isn't delivering. Generously, this has been a tough 18 months for Altium, of course, as for a lot of software vendors. Very hard to get in people's faces, make the sales calls in the middle of COVID. So if you're generous, you might say, okay, well, business hasn't grown because we haven't been able to go and make those deals. That's probably not unreasonable, by the way. But you ask yourself on the flip side, guys, if you're so sure this this was going to be a great business year, you know, wouldn't you have taken the 40-something dollars being offered rather than the $29 the share price is at currently? Yeah. You've got to wonder the answer wouldn't be yes. Um, this is why, look, if there's anything positive I can say about it, or at least one, a reason to hold on, it would be that management do believe it's worth more under their own management. Now, maybe that's horribly, horribly wrong, but they've got decent shareholding. So they're very, very incentivized to do what they think is best for the long-term business. I wouldn't rush away from this one because of that, because of its long-term track record. Uh, it has done really well in the past, so I wouldn't run away from it. I wouldn't be buying more just yet, though I'd want to see some runs on the board first. Okay, Mark? Uh, yes, we know we know this business very well. Um, Team Invest members were we had quite a lot of members invested in his in the past. Not so now. Uh, I think we still have a few that have kept the faith. Uh, the problem is that they've got lots of challenges. These guys provide the software to design uh, printed circuit boards, and they've got international clients. And we we know management quite well. And as Scott mentioned, they do have good skin in the game, which we like. The problem is it's on an 84 PE, and it, it's being priced as if it's a rapid growth high tech software company, and it's not. It's, it's EPS growth rate for the last six years has averaged 6.7% a year, oh, which is wow. hard. That's, that's less than Harvey Norman. So the, yeah. bottom, the bottom line is they, they are not, this business is not growing fast at all. It's a good stable business and they've got a good product, but it's not worth anything like that. And, and what, what that shows is we're showing a zero return if you bought it at the current price and uh, per year for the next five years. Uh, and the best case scenario we could come up would be 5%. So look, it's just way. It's just not worth the multiple the market's been giving it. But by the way, it's been on a high PE forever. 
you know, if you look at history, mm. it's been in, in that range of 50 to 150 type PEs, but True. it's 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 not pla- it's not well placed because it doesn't have the growth to support. Yeah. And if if you're on those PEs, you've got to deliver at some time. Well, uh, you've got to have at least 80% growth or something, don't you? Yeah, exactly. Mm. Mark Morlan mm. from Team Invest, great to have you aboard. Thank you for that. Uh, Scott Phillips from uh, Motley Fool, always great to catch up. Uh, just to recap the uh, the final five stocks, Icanex, uh, Healthcare, a no from both. Aussie Broadband, a no from Mark, but a, a yes from Scott. Next DC, no from both Illumina, a no, and Altium, a no as well. Um, if you'd like uh, us to analyse any stocks for you, uh, put them in an email, the call at ausbiz.com.au or tweet us using the at TV handle. All the stocks in the calls portfolio, if you want to look at them, just go to osbiz.co forward slash portfolio.